Hello, everybody, and welcome to another one of Alan Robson's Grizzly Tales right here on robsonsworld.com. Make sure you tell everybody, all of your friends who do the whole podcasting thing, this is where you'll find us. It would help me if you spread the word, as always. Now, I was thinking, well, what direction can we go that's really grisly that maybe has something to do with 99% of you? Travelling in cars. So tonight, the most grisly car accidents ever and how they happened. Now, you can imagine if you were in a car race, well, that's very dangerous. You're travelling at high speed, drag racing, perhaps even more dangerous. And if you can imagine racer Scott Kalita's car engine exploded in New Jersey in 2008 when he was travelling at 300 miles per hour. The parachutes behind the vehicle, because they're supercharged, got damaged due to the explosion, so it became impossible to stop the car. The car, travelling at 300 miles an hour, smashed into a post that ended the race, and it ended Scott Kalita's life. Horrific. Speed kills, stupid speed always kills. Can't be reckless behind the wheel of a car. So, Monaco. Now, Monte Carlo. A lot of drinking, a lot of fast business, fast women, fast men. Now, an Integra decided it was going to race along a lonely highway in the countryside. However, coming in the opposite direction, an ex-terror car decided to travel in the opposite direction. The Integra tried to get back on the right side of the road, but with such tiny amounts of time to make that decision, the driver lost control of the car and hit the terror head-on. He was killed instantly in the collision. The other passengers of the Integra remained unharmed, and it was a miracle that they were. They were spattered with parts of the man's head. The passengers of the ex-terror were safe and sound, except the one who received minor injuries. I don't want to be in a car when I'm spattered by bits of brain of the person who should be trying to keep me safe behind a wheel. Audis. For many, many years, I have always said... BMWs are those the car that's two inches off the back of your car. They're the ones speeding past you at four times the limit. Audis have replaced the BMW in that regard, as far as I'm concerned. And one of the biggest car accidents in history happened in Brisbane, in Australia, when a bloke driving an Audi at about 110 miles an hour on what he thought was an empty road However, he spotted a pothole up ahead and travelling at that speed, just the tiniest turn of a wheel could cause no end of harm, and it did for him. He smacked straight into a pole and a concrete structure behind it, and that is when the car increased its speed even more. The incident was said to have happened in the early hours of the morning, 
the car ended crashing into a family's bedroom in the front of a house that killed the driver instantly. There were no other cars in the vicinity. The road surface was dry, speed itself, and a slight pothole was the cause of a killer accident. Yeah, we're always told that if the weather conditions are roughy-tufty, if there's any fog, if it's serious rain, you know that kind of rain where your washers can't move fast enough to get the water off your screen. In times like that, that's when you've got to be at your most careful. And back in November 1991, California saw one of its most terrifying car crashes. 104 cars smashed together to create a tangled island of motor vehicle destruction. A hundred cars and four tractor trailers were involved and it led to six miles of blockage. 17 people were killed, 150 people were injured, many losing limbs. And all that caused the accident was reduced visibility because of a dust storm caused by uncultivated land getting too dry along the highway, the wind blowing it across the dual carriageways. It took more than two days to get rid of all the wreckage and open the road again. It's not worth 17 people's death just for you to slow down in bad weather. Mentioned BMWs, it is no surprise to me that in our chart of the world's grisliest car accidents that speeding BMW 5 series end up meeting with accidents and this one was a tragedy. Its driver decided to take on another car in a street race. Now this is in a public street where people could have crossed at any time. And they, both vehicles, got up to 135 miles an hour. Now, when you're travelling at that kind of speed, if a tyre blows, you're dead. And one of the tyres blew out. And he crashed the car into a solid concrete pillar after the car had carried out at least eight somersaults the car broke into tiny pieces, scattered all over the area, and the driver was scattered all over the area too. No other casualties, but you could not even recognise the vehicle as a car by the time it stopped. For those of you that are Formula One and Grand Prix fanatics, and I know there's a lot of you that love to travel around, or at least on television, watch every single race well even one of the great drivers ended his life during Formula 1 Ayrton Senna he died during the Grand Prix at San Marino in 1994 he was in the lead he was all set to win and for no reason it seems his car lost control went off the track now some people think that it was an unexpected breaking of his steering shaft. However, whatever it was, it took Ayrton Senna's life. Now, 
Formula One has a whole host of additional safety standards, and that has led to no deaths in the past 15 to 20 years. So what else are we going to find? We haven't even reached the top 10 yet. One of the cars that I've always liked the look of, never had a chance to get behind the wheel, Dodge Vipers. They do look like very fast cars. But like any fast car, if you lose control at high speed, that will take you out. And this particular accident occurred on the Arizona Highway, which is a very long straight road. The temptation to speed is mighty. The driver of this particular Dodge Viper was seeing what the car could do. Now, how many of us have even used that same phrase? Why were you going, oh, don't go so fast. I'm just seeing what the car could do. And the driver had his foot down on the floor with the speedo at 170 miles an hour when he suddenly got distracted. This caused the speeding car to flip multiple times before it slammed into a telegraph pole. The collision caused the car to bend in two, snap and kill the driver whose body was in one half but his head and one shoulder was in the other. Okay, let's take a look at uh, multi-car pileups. Now, I have been fortunate, if that's the right word, to be on the Dubai-Abu Dhabi Highway in the United Arab Emirates. Once again, it is a completely flat, very straight road with sand on either side. Yes, there are poles because there are lights and there are also uh, telegraph or telephone poles. Now, this happened in 2008 and it involved... 226 vehicles that all crashed into one another and in the middle of all of that 12 buses slammed into them too the crash resulted in the biggest pile of burning metal ever recorded recorded as one of the worst multiple pileups ever in the world it was blamed on heavy fog and stupid drivers insisting on travelling far too fast. So, let us now head in the direction of the top ten. And once again, it seems the people who have the most money to spend on cars seem to be the ones that are intent in destroying their beautiful vehicle and allowing it to take their lives. Many a time on TV programmes you will hear experts or rich people, because it takes one or the other, to drive a Lamborghini Murcielago. And this one happened in Egypt. This guy only bought the car less than a week before this particular incident. He hadn't even insured the car yet, but he wanted to get on a motorway, another one of those straight-through-the-desert highways, and check out its speed, check out the power of this amazing vehicle. So, um, he flew it at 150 miles an hour on that Egyptian highway. However, just as the road began to curve, he was a good half a car over the lane when a truck cut out, 
causing the Lamborghini to try and break, uh, break it did, but not B-R-A-K-E, it B-R-O-K-E, into pieces. The driver lost his $350,000 car, but miraculously he survived the incident crushed into a heap underneath the dashboard in the driver's seat. Now, TVRs. Somebody told me the TVRs are like kit cars. They're not particularly well put together. And I don't know whether that backs this up. We're going to South Africa now. Back on a really bright, stunningly sunny morning in South Africa, 2006. Uh, A driver of a TVR was racing against a Mercedes on the outskirts of Johannesburg. The TVR was racing at 140 miles an hour, as was the Merc, and the driver lost control, crashed into a curb at first, but the high momentum caused the car to catapult up into the air. It flipped seven times and got jammed under an overpass before landing into a complete mess. The driver of the vehicle died on the spot, and his car was in 11 separate pieces. I tell you, people with too much money are a bloody danger. This next one is a Ferrari. And uh, it was... uh, Stupid, just a dumb thing to do in 2004. This is a Ferrari, and the driver of it got his car up to 130 miles an hour on a twisty country road. Now, the driver, at the precise time of the incident, was bragging to the girl sitting beside him, trying to impress her with the speed his car could do on these tiny little narrow lanes. And as soon as he started bragging, the car crashed into a power lane, bringing it down, uh, live cables hitting the car. The car snapped into two pieces. The man and his bleeding passenger managed to crawl out of the side that had the front seats in it. It's my dream to be able to drive a new car. It's many people's dreams to have any car. So for these spoilt nooks to spend more on a car than we would spend on a house and then treat it with such disregard is insulting. But let's get back to the United Arab Emirates and around that neck of the woods. A Mercedes McLaren, one of the most beautiful cars. Once I was uh, lucky enough to be in America and they had some kind of car show on at the hotel I was staying at. And outside the front doors, on either side, they had the latest Mercedes McLaren and they're beautiful, beautiful cars. And yet the worst car accident in history took place on one of those open Qatar Roads in 2008. A 22-year-old man, ecstatic at what had just been handed to him with a pair of keys uh, by his rich father, decided he would take it, tearing along the sandy road. 
at 160 miles an hour. When he got to 160, he started to lose his nerve and he lost control. The car flipped in the air at least 20 times before tearing into three pieces and getting scattered across the desert. And once again, if you looked at the bits left, it looks like it was never a car in the first place. Two tyres travelled a mile and a half before they were found. The man, of course, was in pieces, lying across the desert to be collected, not by hand, but by bucket. We had a story from South Africa a little bit earlier on, and this one is another horror from the Grand Prix. You know, each time anybody loses a life, it's tragic, it's devastating for friends, for family. But this one is a sporting event, which makes it possibly one of the more horrifying out of all of them. During the South African Grand Prix back in 1977, Tom Price met with an awful accident while he was on the racetrack. A field marshal came across the track with a fire extinguisher because his car was on fire, but Price, who'd lost control, hit the guy running across the road and he hit him at 200 miles an hour, tearing the young lad's body into two halves. The fire extinguisher that the guy was carrying hit Tom Price's head, almost taking his head off, leaving it hanging by a thread. Price and the field marshal died instantaneously in what was a horrific and tragic accident. And in this particular case, it was no one's fault. A young man trying to save a life got hit by a car that was driving fast on a motorway circuit, not expecting to see someone running across it. And Price's car had crashed into a side. He was waiting for somebody to come and put the fire out. This is a horrific tale and certainly fits in with our grisly ethic. And again, in a, in a strange and bizarre world, if you go back about 30 years, I was invited to drive a Honda. It was a Honda Accord in a road race on the Daytona circuit. Now, this was a race not for professional drivers at the least. It was given to a variety of radio presenters, TV presenters, and people testing the new Honda Accord. And I found the whole thing fairly terrifying. You're not used to driving on a slope and trying to overtake people going up a hill sideways. It's a very strange discipline and a one I'm painfully not very good at. But there was a car crash on Daytona, not that far from when I was doing it, 20 years ago. It was one of the worst car accidents in the history of motor racing. The incident killed the driver, a guy called Dale Earnhardt, and he had owned seven times championship and 76 Daytona race victories. During the very last lap of the race, another racer, Kenny Schrader, let his car into a bit of a spin 
and it hit the wall, and that eventually led to Erhardt's death because the spinning car tipped the very back of Earnhardt and he ended up crashing head-on into the side, crushing the man to death. This shocked his fans and NASCAR immediately began building safer barriers for all future races. Ferraris we've mentioned, yes, we all like the look of a Ferrari. How many of us, if we were given a set of keys and said, go and have a try with that, wouldn't get behind the wheel? But on a cool Italian afternoon in October, back in 2005, on the outskirts of Milan, another example of stupid driving. This was a Ferrari Enzo. Again, a very famous car. The 41-year-old who was driving it decided, as it was a straight road, straight out of Milan, he thought he would do 160 miles an hour just to show off to the other motorists that he was behind the wheel of one of the most powerful cars on the road. Once again, a loss of nerve at high speed and a loss of control sent the car whirling into a collision. The impact on the car led the driver to be killed instantly, sending the car smashing into numerous pieces scattered across the road for 1.3 miles bits of that car. The driver was reported to be driving his million-dollar car recklessly the day before the accident too he'd been stopped and given a warning by Italian police he paid for not listening with his life so we're on to pretty much a top three of grizzly car related habnabs and at three we have Germans them Germans one of the biggest car accidents in history and the Autobahn, speeding is allowed. on Not just allowed, I've driven the Autobahn. You are encouraged to get wherever you're going quickly. And to be honest, in most cases, and in general, it is safer than any road in Britain. However, not so in the middle of 2009. 259 cars smashed into each other, creating the biggest car crash in history. And it was all because of heavy rain. Now, the German authorities believe that if it's raining heavily, then car drivers will not drive at such high speeds. However, they did. 66 people were badly injured. Nobody killed. And the estimated cost to clean up the mess and to pay off the insurance was £2.5 million. Now, I know that I'm not a fan of motor racing. I've never really understood it. I still don't. Yes, it's, it's people driving fast. Yes, I understand that. I, I just can't get into it. I have tried unsuccessfully. Some people say that people who follow motor racing, they're just watching in the hope that somebody's killed. I certainly hope that isn't the case. However, they did see someone get killed at Le Mans in 1955. Pierre Levesque was driving a Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR and taking part in that tournament. 
It all happened when he decided he was going to pass his teammate uh, in a slower Austin Healy. And he hit the rear end of his car, throwing his Mercedes into the air and crashing it into an embankment, sending debris and burning debris at that from the car into crowds all over the track and injuring a hundred spectators and killing 82 of them the speed he was travelling. It was such a huge episode, this accident rendered that type of car racing unlawful. It became a crime from that day. And 82 people watching, hoping maybe something happened. Well, it did happen for them, and 82 of them died. Now... This one has been universally chosen by a few different people as the worst of the worst. And yes, it's the Audi again, the Audi A6. And this only happened less, ooh, five, six years ago. It was called the Snapchat killer. And it is the perfect example of stupidity behind the wheel. Adil Haroun was 19 years of age and he decided he would drive the Audi A6 that he'd hired. I didn't even know you could hire cars with that kind of capacity when you're, when you're 19. But he hired it and he drove it on a main street, 30 mile an hour road, at 142 miles an hour when a car on the opposite carriageway saw it driving at him and hit him head on. He hit... Joseph Brown Larty, a 25-year-old who was in another Audi. The victim's car split in two. The emergency services said it was the worst car accident they'd ever seen. And yet the day before the accident, Haroon, being a dummy, sent a photograph of his speedometer on the M62 at 142 miles an hour. He sent it around bragging to all of his friends. And he got from Rochdale to Leeds in 11 minutes. They nicknamed Haroon the Snapchat Killer. And he got six years in prison for his dangerous driving. But it doesn't change the fact that the guy he hit died. They put pictures of the wreckage because the car was in two pieces with 100 yards between one end to the other. And it was put on public display as a warning to young people how not to drive. And blame me, it's terrifying to know that when you're out driving, just trying to get from A to B to get a loaf of bread or to drop the kids off at school, you got people in cars with that kind of mentality. So let's head to another topic that probably most of you will not have expected. I want to tell you a story about Khaki. Khaki Collins, in fact. The killer leprechaun. <laughs> Seems far-fetched. Now, I've met people who talk to leprechauns. I've met a leprechaun whisperer. And if you go to Ireland, they take their leprechauns very, very seriously. Now, whether Khaki Collins was actually a leprechaun or not, we'll probably never know, but we can be sure 
that he was one of the most villainous and murderous rogues ever to live in Ireland. In fact, he never lived on the Irish mainland, but off the Kerry coast, on the island of Great Blasket. There he had gathered cutthroats of every kind to form a gang of raiders who preyed on towns and villages throughout Kerry, Cork and Limerick. He was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of people and, if you hear his stories, he'd been known to eat their flesh too. Collins himself was a tiny man, certainly less than four feet in height, with a huge beard that trailed around his waist. The mere sight of the waddling brigand was enough to send most people running for safety. He had been a thorn in Ireland's side for almost 45 years when he finally met his match. The year was AD 459, and Collins, in his late 50s, had decided on his most ambitious attack. They would sail their small boat directly into Bantry Bay, sack Glengariff and then Bantry before returning home. He had over a hundred men with him and he believed that the townspeople would run rather than fight such a vicious mob. The boats gathered in the bay and hid around the point, and then the raiders disembarked, and following the curve of the headland, charged into Glengariff. Collins was right, most of the population did flee, and those that remained paid the penalty. The older men were swiftly dispatched, the young men were taken prisoner to be sold into slavery, and the women would be raped, and then sold... Collins was merciless. At one sale of slaves at Ross Lair, he couldn't get a decent price for his group of 27 boys and girls, all aged between 3 to 12. So he hacked their heads off in front of the gathering, splattering them all with innocent blood. And then he told them that he would return the following month, and if they refused to buy his next group, the heads rolling would be theirs. After butchering hundreds at Glengariff, Collins and his men rested, spent the night assaulting the women, then turned their attention to the biggest town Collins would ever face, Bantry. In the early hours of the morning, he collected his boats and sailed across the bay, and when they landed at Bantry, he proclaimed that the town was his. The leader of the settlement came to him and asked what he wanted, Khaki, looking up at the lanky man, ordered him to kneel down so he could talk to him at eye level. This the man did. And then he was given a full list of riches that had to be forthcoming, otherwise Bantry would be burnt to the ground. Collins gave the citizens two hours to meet his demands. If they refused, the raiders would attack and take no prisoners. At the same time, a man from Glengariff arrived with the news of what had happened there 24 hours earlier. The Bantry folk were petrified when the town's most special guest then stepped forward and said quietly, Let me speak to him. It was Bishop Patrick, who would later become Saint Patrick, and he insisted in talking to the tiny pirate. The bishop had been born near Carlisle in England, the son of a landowner from Roman stock called Calpurnius. His grandfather, Poitus, 
had also been a priest, and at the age of 14, the bishop had been captured by Collins' raiders and sold as a slave to an Irish family. At the age of 20, he escaped in a small boat and had managed to reach France, known then as Gaul, where he trained to be a priest. He'd been sent a vision of God, telling him that he must return to Ireland and convert the Irish and he'd since converted most of the kings of Leinster, Munster and Ulster, and he'd gained permission for priests to travel around spreading the word. Now, Patrick was a charismatic man, and everyone who met him believed at once that he received direct guidance from God. The Bantry townspeople were happy to let Bishop Patrick meet the old murderer, but couldn't see what he'd be able to do against swords and axes. The bishop crouched down and, on meeting the pirate's eyes, recognised him. Collins had been his captor more than thirty years earlier. "'I remember you, Greybeard,' said the bishop, who also had a long greybeard, "'for you murdered my friends and sold me as a slave.' "'And who might you be?' then asked Collins. Softly spoken as ever, the bishop replied, "'I am Bishop Patrick, and I've come to ask you to stop the killing.' and to reach towards God. God, laughed the rogue. I'm the only God in Ireland, and I expect these people to pay tribute to me in gold and silver, and a few women thrown in for good measure. His tiny frame shook with laughter, yet his eyes remained focused on Patrick's face. These people cannot fight you, said the bishop. I have witnessed the ferocity of the raiders firsthand. They care not for life themselves. They are already in the devil's hands. Oh, no, they're not. They're in my hands, snapped Khaki. They do my bidding, not the devil's. Calmly, the bishop stood up and said, I am he who drove the serpents from Ireland, and as God is my witness, I shall drive you out too. This was said with such conviction Khaki Collins was taken aback. There he was in front of his own men, and this unarmed priest was threatening him. How can you do that, you old fool? I think I'll just drive my sword through you and be done with it, said Khaki. In truth, he didn't want to have to take Bantry by force. He'd lost many men at Glengariff and could ill afford to lose any more. So he had to set an example with this slave who'd become a priest. Watch me! He shouted to his men on the boats, I'm about to kill one of God's men. He picked up a double-headed axe and was about to use it when something stopped him. He began shivering and the axe fell from his hand. My Lord protects and keeps me and delivers the souls of your men to the fallen angel. Khaki Collins didn't really understand what was happening. On looking behind him, he saw all of his boats beginning to sink. His men were tumbling into the water but seemed unable to swim. And they all drowned. Seventy or eighty figures were seen swimming to shore, but when they landed, Collins could see that they were all those that he had taken as slaves. He now had fewer than twenty men, while by this time over three hundred townspeople had gathered behind Bishop Patrick, and they were beginning to get more than a little bit restless too. Wanting to kill the pirates, but the bishop said God will repay these men. 
and turned to walk away from them. Collins once again ran at him but seemed to run into some kind of invisible barrier. Collins and his men walked back along the Bantry course to his longboat, his only remaining vessel, and they rowed away, knowing that with the tiny sail it would take weeks to get back to Great Blasket. Once they rounded the point, they aimed for the relative safety of Valencia Island, but the wind began to roar and his vessel capsized, and they were washed up on the skelligs. There, it said, Collins and his crew eventually died of starvation. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I'm going to bring an end to this feature, telling a story from Poole in Dorset. Because whenever people talk about how things were so much better in the good old days, I think of stories like this from the middle 1800s. It involved a landlord of an old inn near Market Street in Poole, whose wife gave birth to two children. Sadly, they were both born handicapped, one with a cleft palate and a paralysed leg. The other had a huge growth on his face and a withered and twisted arm. The landlord was disgusted by the appearance of his own children and decided to hide them from everyone by locking them in a back room when they were only small. However, by the time they were six and eight, he felt that they were more bother than they were worth. His wife loved her children and begged her brutish husband not to do them any harm, and reluctantly he promised not to, saying he would take them to a local convent and let the nuns look after them, as they had done with local orphans on more than one occasion. So the landlord wheeled them away in a straw-laden handcart, covering them with a blanket so they didn't offend any passers-by, leaving a very tearful mother sobbing on her bed, knowing that she may well never see her own children again. However, such were the man's feelings of revulsion for his children that he took them to the disused stables some hundred yards away from the inn. There he carried the children up to an attic room where he strangled them to death. He left them there and sealed the room, taking off the crude door and blocking off a corner. The stables were old and foul, so the smell of rotting corpses would merely mingle with the nearby cesspit and garbage heap and midden. Many believed that the landlord was made an offer for the inn and its outbuildings some years later, and it was too good an offer to refuse, so one night he crept back up to that boarded attic room, gathered the remains into old blankets, and disposed of them in a bog nearby, pushing them into the wet soil. The landlord decided to use the money from the sale of both inn, stables and barn to move his family to Shaftesbury. This caused his wife great consternation, and she determined to see her two sons once more before she left. So without telling her husband, she visited the convent, where to her horror she was told that they hadn't even seen her sons. 
In a raging fury, she rushed back home and clouded her husband across the head with a copper cooking pot. In a daze, he was quizzed as to where the children were and managed to cobble together a plausible story about how a passing tinker had agreed to care for the children. He added that much of his money was sent to them when, in fact, it was a card table in a friend's house that had been responsible for most of his financial losses. Suitably sorry and reasonably placated, the wife left Poole with her husband to start a new life, and this is when the trouble started. All manner of incidents occurred in the stables. Horses were untethered and set free. Straw was set on fire. Saddle girths mysteriously cut and strange voices being heard in the attic. Many people said they could hear children laughing and giggling. Strange floating lights were often seen at night and a few people actually saw the shapes of two deformed children limping down Market Street in Poole. Brian and Michelle Murray stabled their daughter's pony, Willow, at the stables from 1921 to 1924 and suffered a variety of mishaps. They finally removed their animal after their 14-year-old daughter, Bryony, fell, paralysing her leg. In 1966, the stable was converted into a discotheque and this certainly didn't seem to please the spirits of the two sad children, so savagely murdered by their own father. Not only did they terrify dozens of people, but they made the front page of the local newspaper. They started playing the piano in front of customers who could see the keys going down, but couldn't see anyone playing. And then, even after bolting and padlocking the doors, the owners would find the doors wide open again when they returned the business didn't last too long. The Crown Hotel on Market Street still has troubles. The voices of small children screaming in pain are often heard, and tiny, troubled footsteps are heard rushing along the corridors, creaking on the stairs, and their whispering voices in the background of this busy and friendly establishment. So there's our Dabble into grisliness. If you want full-scale adventures, Robson's World is full of them. Perfect end to a night. Just to close your eyes, switch all the lights off, immerse yourself in an audio adventure. They're waiting there for you. They'll make you jump. But until I'm back again next time, from me, Alan Robson, God bless you, and I wish you well, and please... Drive ever so safely.